that. My wife found an arrangement that's low. <laughs> that's always too high for me, these songs. That's why we need to get somebody else to lead. If you turn with me to Titus, <clears throat> Titus chapter 1, I want to read verses 5 through 9. This is the inerrant word of God. <clears throat> For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. The man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Amen. Father God, we submit ourselves to your word and it's our desire to not only understand it, treasure it, to live it out. And we pray that you would anoint my lips and enable me to bring your word uh, to uh, each one here in a faithful way and enable each one of us to be godly hearers of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> there was a, an elder in a church down in Arkansas who joked about the fact that you could never become an elder in that church unless you had quality coon dogs, he says, because how can you rule in the church of God if you can't tell a good coon dog. Now, he was only joking, but there was an element of truth in it. A city slicker like myself would have had a real tough time, I think, fitting into that, into that congregation there. Uh, how do you shepherd people that you cannot relate to? Well, you can do it, but it is a lot more difficult. And so even if a person meets all of the biblical qualifications that are laid down in these verses that we're going to be looking at, it's not a guarantee that the congregation is going to feel comfortable in choosing them. I know of another Arkansas church where the uh, elders in a backcountry church, uh, I, I don't think any of them had an education past eighth grade, but they were very good shepherds of the flock there and uh, did an outstanding job, but they felt totally out of their element when they went to visit a big metropolitan church that the son of their pastor was pastoring in. And I bring up that story just to illustrate that there's a lot that goes into choosing elders and pastors and associate pastors. Will a man fit on the team? Will he fit the church? Can the people respect him? You know, if he doesn't have any coon dogs, can he at least appreciate the fact that most of the people in that congregation have coon dogs? And can he minister to them? To what degree do the qualifications listed in Titus and in Timothy uh, find a match in his life, and I say to what degree, because Paul recognizes that nobody is perfect. Uh, he recognized that in his, uh, in his own life. Um, and uh, uh, I, I want to give basically three goals for the sermon this morning. The first goal is to set a standard before you. These are things by which you can evaluate whether you're qualified to be an elder, either now or in the future. Uh, hopefully, there will be not just uh, elders now, but elders coming up in the future. It'll help to guide your, your voting in the future. The second goal is to convince you 
that they are to be models for you to follow. Okay? If you are to be imitating them, then that means that these things are a standard for every one of you, especially for the men uh, of this congregation. And then the third goal is to explain why we should not have a perfectionistic view of the eldership. Some people have such a high view of elders that they would not allow Paul to be an elder in their congregation. Now, let me explain why. Uh, Paul blew it a few times. Uh, he recognized that uh, he had not yet arrived. He wasn't perfect. Uh, he says in Philippians 3, verse 14, that he presses toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He saw himself as the chief of sinners, 1 Timothy 1, 15. Now, grace has a way of doing that. It not only makes us secure in God's grace, but grace has a way of making us feel like we are worse than what other people think of us. <clears throat> it, um, <clears throat> it has a, <clears throat> a way of so magnifying the sins that are in us and yet magnifying God's grace that we are secure at the, at the same time. I was listening to a tape when I was traveling back from uh, Kansas City on Friday of a friend of mine. And he was quoting <clears throat> a pastor, Jack Miller, who uh, is, is dead now, but he was over in Philadelphia. And every time people were discouraged over their sin, uh, Jack Miller would say, well, cheer up. You're far worse than you think you are. <laughs> and his point was, until we really understand the depth of the depravity of our hearts, we're not going to be secure in grace and living only by grace. Because the moment we think we're gaining God's favor by the things that we do, we've messed up. It is grace and it's grace alone. And so when a person really has been gripped by God's grace and he understands his sin to the degree that God says we ought to understand our sins, people can point out sin to him and he can ask for forgiveness. He says, you know, that's not the only sins. Here's some more sins in my life. Uh, and still be secure in God's grace. But the point is that Paul had times when he blew it and needed to get reconciled. He got angry at Mark in Acts 15, verse 39. From my perspective, he did not handle his uh, conflict with Barnabas in a biblical fashion. They got reconciled later, and that's very clear from first, or 2 Timothy 4, 11, where Paul admits he was wrong in his judgment about Mark. That Mark was indeed useful to him in his ministry. He didn't think so before. Peter had imperfections as well. In Galatians 2, Peter is said to, quote, to be blamed, verse 11, was driven by ungodly fear, verse 12, quote, played the hypocrite, unquote, verse 13, quote, was not straightforward about the truth, verse 14. See, on that occasion, he fell victim to the fear of man. Through peer pressure, he began to play favorites with other people. Now, he repented of that, and he no doubt had hated the fact that he did that, but the point is, Peter was not perfect. He was not perfect. What he was was a mature person who had grown tremendously in all of these areas of life, but he did have an occasional fall. That's the balance. And we're looking for maturity in all of the areas that are in your outline. Now, on the other hand, we should be very, very worried about men who justify their sins rather than asking for forgiveness for their sins. Uh, we should be worried about men who have habits of sin that they have not been able to throw off. I believe that if you, are, if you have a habit of sin, you're not qualified to be an elder. 
You, you haven't reached a degree of maturity yet where you can be an elder. There needs to be maturity. Second Peter 2, verse 22, you can cross-reference uh, for that. It describes disqualified officers as men who have habits of sin. They have this ongoing appetite for sin. And the image that he uses is really a gross image. It's of a dog returning to its vomit. Uh, he quotes uh, Proverbs 26.11, which says, As a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. Now, it's the repeating, it's the habit that demonstrates this appetite for sin. And I will never understand why dogs like vomit. Uh, I, I really liked my dog out in Ethiopia. It was a cool dog. That was one of the things that always grossed me out. Uh, a carrion, too, you know, rotting flesh out there. They, they loved it. And you can train a dog to be outwardly well-groomed and just so polite and everything, you know, to not eat anything unless the master tells you you can go ahead and eat. But left to himself, he still has an appetite for vomit. He will return to that vomit. It's guaranteed. It doesn't matter how many outward changes that you have put there. And so what we're looking for in mature men is people who not only hate their sin and who not only do not justify their sins, but who understand grace to such a degree that grace characterizes their lives throughout the week. Uh, we're not talking about perfectionism, but on the other hand, we are talking about maturity. We're talking about a godly testimony. We're talking about people who know what it means to be empowered by the Spirit when they fall down to deal with that sin in a biblical fashion to move forward. Now, in your notes, I've given two outlines. Uh, I've given a booklet that's got a color cover on the front, and we're not going to cover all of that uh, today. Uh, that's just for your reference. It covers everything in Titus and everything in uh, 1 Timothy. And then there's a one-page outline that uh, we're going to just try to quickly move through today. <clears throat> and... What I want you to do is take that booklet, and if you don't have one in your worship notes, pick one up off of the back table. I want you to use that in the months to come, not only to pray for the future officers, but to make it a prayer in your own life. Lord, help me as a man to be the pastor of my family. Help me as a woman to show the degree of uh, maturity that these, the, the, these points uh, spell out because they are to be elders. Uh, elders, I should say, are to be examples. Now, I've divided the qualifications up into four parts. Qualifications related to roles, related to family, related to character, and then related to doctrine. And the first one are the qualifications to their roles. Now, there's, this is not an exhaustive list. There are other labels or titles that are put on elders, but the three titles that are used in this chapter, I think, are a wonderful description of what elders ought to be. They're described as elders in verse 5. In verse 7, they're called bishops or overseers. And then the same verse calls them stewards. And elder candidates need to be people who can fill the shoes of those titles there. The first title, elder, is a key one. Verse 5, Titus is commanded to appoint elders in every city. Now, there are two things I want to uh, bring out from that word. And the first is pretty obvious, and that is that there is an age qualification. Uh, a five-year-old, obviously, is not an elder. Uh, by definition, he is not an elder. Uh, the word literally means an older man, and yet it's surprising to me how frequently the discussion of age never even comes up when elders are being discussed. I believe that a bare minimum for the office of elder is the age of 30. 
And that's young. That's young. That's the bare minimum, the age of 30. That was the way it was in the Old Testament, and that's the way it was in Christ's life. He did not enter into the ministry until he was 30 years of age, even though he had plenty of qualifications and plenty of abilities way earlier than that. It's not an issue of whether you're, you're, you've got abilities and you've got uh, giftings and things like that. I mean, you look at Christ at 12 years of age, he was stumping the brightest amongst the people in the temple. Uh, so normally speaking, an elder was definitely older in age, or if he was young, in other words, if he was just 30 years of age, he was mature way beyond his years. That's what is communicated. Now, some people will object. Now, that doesn't seem right, Phil, because Paul told Timothy, do not let anyone despise uh, your youth. And so, obviously, Timothy was pretty young. In fact, uh, I've known some PCUSA churches that have had teenagers as elders in their congregations, and they've appealed to that verse. They say, well, don't let anybody despise your youth. And I would say, just read the Old Testament. You won't get very far, and you will realize that the Old Testament says that that is a sign of immaturity and backsliddenness in the church when there are children who rule the people. Uh, that, that, that just does not uh, fly uh, at all. So what is the youth? In 1 Timothy 4.12, how old was he? Well, scholars range in their view of his age from an absolute low of 34 years old to uh, about 42 years of age are, is the range of the estimates there. William Hendrickson calculates the time from when Timothy first appears on the scene in the book of Acts, which was 51 A.D., goes up to 63 A.D., and uh, takes a guess at how old he was at... Um, uh, in uh, Acts when it starts, and he says he could not have been younger than 34. His guess is he was probably 39, so somewhere between 34 and 39. Others, based on Jewish conventions, estimate his age to be 42 here, according to Irenaeus, an early church father. Actually, I think uh, uh, he was discipled by the Apostle John. I may be mistaken on that, but anyway, Irenaeus uh, says that uh, the, the word young applies to anybody under 40. So that gives you a little bit of a bearing of what they thought of elders. Now, others will object with pragmatic arguments. They will say, well, look at Spurgeon. Uh, he was started preaching when he was in his teens. He was a pastor when he was in his early 20s. And think of how the kingdom would have been robbed if they had legalistically followed this kind of a rule. Well, I would say you could say the same thing about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was better than any of us pastors when he was 12 years old. He was an amazing guy. He stumped all of the people there. And so, you know, Christ, what a waste of time that Christ would, you know, legalistically follow the bare minimum of 30 that was set by, by the Old Testament. And we would have to say, no, that argument does not hold up. By definition, a person is not qualified to be an elder if he is under 30. Now, the second thing I want to draw out from that word elder is the function of an elder because not everybody who was old automatically became an elder. It was an office. As I've said earlier, there were younger people who had the title of elder. If you study through some of the verses I've given on that one-page outline, uh, you'll see the word elder is a technical term for those who held an office of rule, authority, and the administration of justice. Okay, so when there is a dispute in the church, what does Paul want us to do? Well, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, don't be going to the pagan courts. He says, uh, that's a shame. 
You ought to rather be defrauded than to go to a pagan court. If you're dealing with pagans, okay, that's one thing. You can go to their court, but you need to go to the church. He is saying that people in the church need to have the ability to judge such cases. And so that's a, that's a very heavy uh, burden for elders to bear upon their shoulders. And yet we saw in Exodus chapter 18, that is an essential part of being an elder, that they need to be able to judge cases. They, they need to be qualified to be rulers, judges, administrators of justice. And so when you think of the word elder, I want you guys to be praying that I and any elders who come after me would be not only mature beyond our years, but that we would be given wisdom by the Lord to be able to fill the shoe of what an elder would do in the Old and the New Testaments. Uh, that we, well, for example, if you had a dispute with some businessman, a Christian businessman, that you would trust us implicitly to have binding arbitration, and you know we would give biblical justice on that case. Don't vote for a person that you do not believe can fill the qualification of an elder. Uh, that's what an elder is by definition. Now, the second word is bishop. The word literally means an overseer. And for some people, that term doesn't sit any better than the, the earlier one we used of ruler. Uh, doesn't just doesn't sit with them. And part of the problem, I think, is we look at pagan rulers, and we look at pagan overseers, and we import what they do into the church, and we say, boy, that would be an awful thing if uh, rulers like that came into the church. And we need to realize the Bible does not advocate big civil government, does not advocate big church government. It's not big brother peering over your shoulder, you know, and uh, uh, interfering with your affairs. Now, sometimes that does happen. 1 Peter 5 talks about that happening, but it's saying that's a distortion of what God wanted. It is not what God means by overseeing. But having said that, um, he still tells the elders they cannot abdicate that responsibility to rule, to oversee, simply because there are abuses out there. And the oversight can't be merely a figurehead position. It's got to be true oversight. A shepherd who allowed his sheep to be eaten by wolves without investigating and doing anything about it is not giving oversight. And yet that happens all the time in churches. A shepherd who allows disease to get into the, into the sheep and he doesn't do anything about it or he allows, you know, some older sheep to be butting against his sheep that are under his care, he's not giving oversight like God wants him to give oversight. And so we need to ask, is this person capable of giving oversight? Last title that is given to them in this passage is steward. Now, if you want to know what a steward is like, just think of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph was merely a slave. And yet, as a slave, he was elevated to the position of steward because Potiphar could just trust him to be able to rule over the affairs of his household. Now, Joseph had the authority of Potiphar behind him, and he ruled as if he were Potiphar. So if people, well, other slaves that were in there disobeyed Joseph, they were disobeying Potiphar. I mean, that's the way that the uh, chain of authority went. But he couldn't just operate by his own rules. He had to operate by the rules of Potiphar. Well, it's the same with elders. Uh, elders are required to represent the Lord, to be accountable to the Lord, and they have to operate by the Lord's standards. But stewardship trust implies some abilities. And so, first thing I want you to ask for us and for future elders is that we would be capable elders, overseers, and stewards. We would be faithful to our calling as such. Huge responsibility, and uh, I might say that it's something you grow into over time. 
uh, you get better and better at over time. You're not going to instantly be superb. But Satan is going to try to do his utmost to attack the leadership of this church. And we need to pray and pray and pray that God would help the elders to be what they should be so they could receive Christ's words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now next, let's go through the family qualifications. And keep in mind, again, these are things that you need to ask. Are they characteristic of the person that I'm going to be voting for? Um, And by the way, you're not just going to be voting for elders and maybe an associate pastor. You're going to be voting whether to retain me as your pastor. See, I've been doing a sales job on you guys that I really want to stay here and (laughs) marketing myself to you. But um, no, you you need to vote on whether I am to be your pastor in the future. Right now, I'm just a yeah. Right now, I'm just a church planter. And so, at the time that we get particularized, you need to evaluate: Does Phil Kaiser measure up to the qualifications here? Do the ruling elder candidates do? Does the I almost gave his name away? Does the person that we're going to be talking about next week does he meet the qualifications that um, that we're going to be looking at? So here's verse six again. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. Paul says, if a man is blameless. And there's a, a different word, it's a synonym that's used in Timothy, above reproach. And I want you to notice that this requirement is used two times. It's used in connection with the family qualifications of verse 6, and then it's used again in connection with the character qualifications of verses 7 and 8. In other words, they must be blameless with regard to the issues that are in this passage. It doesn't mean that the community is going to uh, necessarily uh, like them. Otherwise, there couldn't be any elders in Muslim countries or countries where there's persecution because... Uh, you know, I mean, even Paul, Paul and Silas, they get mobbed out of several cities, didn't they? And uh, Paul had the reputation of being a criminal in different places. He wasn't. It was a false accusation. But it doesn't mean necessarily that you're not going to get false accusations. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the church is going to totally like everything that you do. You know, Corinth had their doubts about Paul. Uh, whether they really, I mean, they respected his authority, but they had their doubts about whether they liked getting beat up in sermons by him. The critical thing is that there be nothing that can legitimately be held against an elder that would make him subject to any major blame, criticism, censure, particularly with regard to the things that are listed in Titus 1. I've known of elders uh, when I was growing up who led a double life, and the reason I knew about it is I worked with them. And I was thinking, they're a saint in church. They're just one of the boys no different than anybody else at work. And that, you can see, would be an absolutely devastating testimony for the church. It would totally ruin the church's reputation. Okay. Second, he needs to be a man. And both Timothy and Titus use a Greek word, aner, that means male rather than the generic term for a man. And so what he's doing here is he's emphasizing the masculinity. He needs to be a male. He needs to be a man Um, He needs to be a real man. 1 Timothy 2 is very clear. Do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. So that's pretty straightforward. We don't have any controversy on that. Uh, We don't even need to delve into uh, the the, the question of whether women could be elders. They can't. But the question might be, why? Why does God do this? 
because I know many women who are very capable teachers and very capable rulers. Why does he not allow it? It has nothing to do with their abilities. In fact, we're going to be seeing that in chapter 2, that he wants some of these mature women to be teaching and training the younger women how to love their husbands, how to work in the home, doing different things. Very capable women in that congregation. It has nothing to do with that. What it has to do with is God wants the blessing of patriarchy to be established on every level of society. And it is a blessing. Uh, He doesn't just want warm bodies to do a job. He wants people who will be models of manhood. And uh, if the church is the nursery of the kingdom, it is also the model to the family. And the family is the foundation of all of society. And so what goes on in the church does have huge uh, ramifications. Now, That's not the only controversial phrase. Every phrase in verse 6 is controversial in the evangelical church. Paul not only insists that elders be men, but that they be married. Thirdly, that they be married to just one wife, that they have children. uh, Fifth, that the children be old enough to be able to be seen as faithful. And then sixth, that a man manages household well without rebellious children. Let's look at each one. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife... Uh, Gordon Clark uh, thinks there's no getting around the Greek here, and I agree with him. And in 1 Timothy, he he says, he must be a married man having children, unquote. Now, I used to think that it meant, well, if a guy is married, he can't have more than one wife. But, you know, the more I studied Hebrew culture and more I studied the history of uh, this situation, the more I became convinced a man ordinarily would never be accepted as an elder in the gates unless he was married. Uh, it was definitely one of the qualifications of eldership in the Old, Old Testament. Now, some people immediately object, uh-huh, we got you, Phil, because Paul would be contradicting himself. He was unmarried. It's so clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that Paul was not married. And uh, yet I would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says this, Let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Most interpretations of 1 Corinthians 7 that I've run across completely ignore that phrase. Let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Any unmarried state that he is talking about in that passage was a temporary state because of the present fiery persecution that they were going through, and they didn't know what the outcome was going to be in the near future. It was very temporary, and if you want confirmation of that, read 1 Timothy 5, where he commands, you know, even the widows to, if they're under 60, to get, um, get remarried, etc. Now, my belief is that Paul was married, he had children, that his wife died uh, sometime, perhaps even shortly, but sometime before 1 Corinthians was written, and that even in 1 Corinthians, he claims the right to get married again. Now, there's several passages uh, to, that I use to back this up on. First of all, in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, Paul claims the right to eat. Does he eat? Yeah. Claims the right to eat, to drink, to have a wife, and uh, the right to have wages like the other apostles. Now, that shows that at least he believes that it, it is his right to get married. This is why I don't think that there was an unbiblical divorce. He said he had a right to it. And he wouldn't have had a right if it was an unbiblical divorce and then he just remained unmarried. So that's just a hint there. Secondly, Acts 26, verse 10 says that Paul, quote, 
cast his vote, unquote, with the Sanhedrin to put the Christians to death. This was before he was saved. And you couldn't vote unless you were on the Sanhedrin. And we have clear testimony that you could not be on the Sanhedrin unless you were married and unless you had children. And um, based on Jewish Sanhedrin law, uh, Paul's children were probably fully grown by the time he was converted. Third, Paul calls himself a Pharisee of the strictest sect, Acts 26, verse 5. Well, we know exactly what the rules were, the strictest sect of the Pharisees. Uh, Unfortunately, they went way, way beyond the Bible, but um, those rules mandated that Pharisee men get married at age 18. That was the preference, and if you delayed it, you were suspect, but it was absolutely imperative. They had to get married before they were 20, and we've got several testimonies to that, but 18 was what 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 was called for. And so I believe he was probably married at 18, possibly even sooner. Um, I put one of the footnotes in here. Uh, I've got several quotes from these Jews, but here's one. It says, Every Jewish man should marry at 18, and he who marries earlier is more meritorious. Now, I'm going to be getting to the more meritorious part in a little bit, but I really do believe he was married 18, possibly even as early as 16. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not recommending this. Okay, He was a Pharisee back then, right? <laughs> don't get any ideas, Jonathan. He was a Pharisee back then, <laughs> and uh, he was misinformed. But the point is, he was married, and uh, he had uh, probably grown children. Okay, here's another proof text. Galatians 1.14, Paul describes himself as being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. And again, they were unbiblical traditions. But he said, I was more exceedingly, I was more strict. I kept them all, but I was more strict. Well, we know one of the traditions was you get married at 18, and it's more meritorious if you get married before that time. Can you see the, the direction that we're going here? And for sure, the Pharisees looked down on any adult who was not married. They looked down on Christ. But they did not look down on Paul. They highly exalted Paul as being a Pharisee of the Pharisees, as he called himself as well. And so I am almost certain Paul was married um, at least by 20, but probably even before the age of 18. Scripture explicitly says that other uh, apostles were married. And here's one last line of evidence. Church fathers, various church fathers like Clement, and Eusebius, and I've got quotes in the footnote here, insist that Paul was married with children. Now, what's remarkable about that is some of these church fathers had a low view of marriage. Uh, They considered celibacy, you know, to be a high ideal, but they insisted Paul was married and that he had uh, grown children. And so uh, scholars like uh, Joachim, Jeremiah, and others think it's absolutely certain that, uh, that Paul was married. I think so as well. And you might think, well, so what? Well, the so what is that both the Old and the New Testaments wanted the elders to be models for the family. How could you be a model to other families of what a family looks like if you don't have a family, right? Um, Modeling is showing. Secondly, how can an elder disciple a family and family issues if he isn't married himself? He can do it, but it's a much more difficult thing. Paul is simply upholding the Old Testament pattern that an elder be a family man. And let me tell you something, there is a richness in growing in grace that you get when you are married and when you have children 
that you cannot get any other way. Uh, there, some people say marriage is for sanctification. I maybe wouldn't go quite that far, but there is. There is something about marriage and having children that takes you beyond areas that you could develop as a single person. Now, there are a lot of Reformed people who would balk at this. I think the, clear, the, the, the Greek is crystal clear. You must be married. Next requirement is that this man be the husband of one wife, or literally a one-woman man. And this, too, is ignored in many, many churches. If a person, if a pastor has committed adultery, he is not a one-woman man, and he should not come back into the eldership. Now, some people say, oh, Phil, that's way legalistic. Grace covers all. Uh, grace restores you uh, into the church. And I say, well, absolutely, yes. You're not a second-class citizen in the, in the, in the kingdom. Uh, forgiveness of that sin restores you as a full member of the church, but it does not restore you to eldership. That's the thing that uh, I, I want to talk about. And let me just use uh, an illustration by way of the polygamy that went on in uh, Crete and, and other places, Ethiopia, where we grew up. There were people who became Christians after they'd already married three wives. And <clears throat> once they become Christians, they're forgiven of that polygamy, right? They're not second-class citizens. They don't have to divorce their second and third wife. Uh, they, they live with them, and they could be very honorable within the congregation. But providentially, God says they shouldn't be uh, elders. Now, we're not talking about fornication before, you know, people are married. We're talking about breaking the marriage covenant. A person needs to be faithful to his wife. And so... If, if it's true of polygamy, that even though they're forgiven of their sins, they cannot be elders, it's true of serial polygamy as well, which would be a, a wrong divorce. Uh, serial polygamy is where you're married uh, not all at the same time, but to multiple wives, and God still considers you married to the last wife because it wasn't a biblical divorce. And so serial polygamy <clears throat> uh, would also disqualify a person from uh, being an elder. And I believe... Uh, that uh, adultery uh, uh, of a pastor, a person who's already in office, uh, that that would disqualify a person as well. Now, why the high standard? Why this requirement? Does it mean that adultery is the unforgivable sin? And I say, oh, no, absolutely not. In the Old Testament, if you committed adultery, you faced the death penalty. Forget about being an elder. It's like, can I be alive, please? <laughs> God took it very, very seriously because you were attacking the very foundation of the family. And if you destroy the family, you destroy the church. You destroy the culture as a whole. That's why God put the death penalty on it. Now, we don't tend to think, you know, oh, well, they're forgiven. Well, yes, they're forgiven. They're in the church. But we got to realize that it was an attack against what is the foundation of culture. And Paul wants the elders discipling families to become strong. He's going to put these elders in a place where they are going to be helping the families to be what they need to be in order to transform culture in chapter 3. That's how much God thinks of the family. Now, the next requirement is that they manage their household well. In 1 Timothy, Paul mentions the qualifications of the wife and as well as the children. Here is just the children that are emphasized. Having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. 
Here are some other translations. A man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Now, that does not mean that when a child grows up and leaves the home, that if at that point they abandon the faith, that your credentials would come into question. It's not saying that. But it's saying as long as that person is under the authority and in the home of that elder, that that person needs to be living as a Christian. He needs to be faithful. He cannot be in rebellion. When rebellion comes, the rebellion needs to be dealt with. So it doesn't mean every time a, you know, a child gets angry or deals with things, it means he's handling rebellion in a biblical fashion. And you can see some of the descriptions uh, in, in, in that um, uh, outline there. <clears throat> I know numerous churches where this requirement is flagrantly violated, and I think you will recognize it, that pastors have the reputation of having the worst kids in the church. At least all through my growing up years, that was the case. The pastor's kids were the trouble, that were the problem. And that ought not to be. If my children had rebellion that I was not able to deal with and was not able to manage, I would feel I would need to step down from the ministry. I think it's a very important uh, qualification. Okay, here's how Timothy words it. 1 Timothy 3, 4 through 5. One who rules his own house well having his children in submission with all reverence, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Far more important than having quality coon dogs, wouldn't you say? <laughs> I think so. In our individualistic society, people, they do not make a connection with the elder's family and his qualification to be an elder. And it's, I think it's a, a sign of how little people think of the family. In most churches, it's not federated families that are together. Families all divided up. Membership and everything else is treated as individualistically. And that's the American way, but that's not the biblical way. And in this church especially, since the family is at the very core of our philosophy, uh, I, I think we need to think about this. Finally, and this was implied in the term elder as well as in the mention of the children's behavior, the elder's children needed to be old enough that their behavior could be evaluated. So it's not sufficient that an elder candidate come along, he's got a five-month-old baby, he says, wow, my child's in submission to me. And you might say, well, <laughs> let's wait a few years and let's see if there is some testing. These children, plural, have to have grown up to some degree so that there could be a testing of whether this person really does know how to rule. <clears throat> now, I'm not going to go into it now. You can read the requirements uh, for the women, 1 Timothy 3, 11. And the reason Paul mentions the wives in 1 Timothy is because those wives are going to be some of the older women in chapter 2 that are going to be discipling the younger women how to have godly, uh, effective families. And so pray that all of us, don't just pray for the elders, these things. Pray that every man in this congregation that has a family would be a faithful pastor of his family, that he would have these qualifications lived out in his life. Those are the family qualifications. Next come the personal qualifications. And for these two, the candidate needs to be blameless. In other words, no charge could be brought against him. Verse 7 says, For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God. I already looked at those phrases. Then comes the next qualification, not self-willed. Some translated or stubborn or arrogant. One commentator said of this verse, Willing to consider others 
and to yield one's own rights, able to take criticism, to admit wrong, and to apologize, not stubbornly insistent on having one's own way. Now, obviously, this does not mean that an elder can't be firm and unyielding. I mean, Paul, when he was firm and unyielding to Peter in Acts 15 and in Galatians 1, was doing the exact opposite of being self-willed. Uh, it would have been really tough. It was self-denial, you know, that enabled him to stand up against that peer pressure and to say, no, this is not biblical. We ought not to be doing this. And so we're not talking. Do not confuse this characteristic with the characteristics some elders have where they're just yes-men in the session. They're just milk toast, you know. They're never willing to confront. They're never willing to uh, get angry over sin. We're not talking about that. But a stubbornness and an arrogance to admit wrong would make a person... Uh, where he should not apply for the position. The next word is not quick-tempered. And that's another quality that is often explained away. You know, well, that's just his personality. You know, give him a break. Well, Paul does not give him a break. Um, he expects him to learn to control his temper. In fact, uh, I know one PCA minister that I do not think should be a minister because he's constantly flying off the handle with his temper. It, to, as far as I'm concerned, it disqualifies him. And I've known him for years. I remember standing in line at uh, Joni... Is it Johnny? Johnny uh, movie. Uh, way back, you know, when it first came out and you got these pre-sold tickets and we're all in line with a ticket in our hand. And he went barreling up to the front of the line and insisted that he get in. He shouldn't have to wait. I've got my ticket. She says, well, everybody else in this line's got ticket as well. And he basically bullied his way through those doors and got in and got a seat. Now, the rest of us who had tickets as well and had to wait, we weren't too impressed. In fact, I was just downright ashamed of the testimony because everybody knew this guy was a pastor. I mean, he's a big-name pastor. And so what I would say is if you've got a temper, you better deal with it quickly. I, I really say that for any man. If you've got a temper, come to me. Please come to me and, and ask for help on how to conquer your temper because God puts this up high on the qualifications of being an elder. But if you're the pastor of your home, you need to control your temper as well. Next, it says that an elder must not be one who is given to wine. New King James Version. Now, the lexicon says it means to drink too much wine or to linger beside the wine. One version has not a hard drinker. Another has not excessive in the use of wine. Well, immediately people will say, well, how much is too much? And try to pin you in a corner. You know, you name your number and they say, okay, well, where is that? Well, what I would say is, I'm not going to name a number, but a candidate ought to be able to answer what is too much for him. And if he cannot say a specific number of glasses that would be too much for him, he doesn't know. He needs to know what is too much for him, right? And so not given to too much wine is not mean, okay, it's one glass short of getting drunk, and I don't get drunk until I have this many. Scripture does not say we should get as close to sin without sinning as we can. It says we should hate our sin. We should flee from sin. And so this is an important qualification. We need to ask the person, okay, do you know how much is too much? Now, what's too much? We, we really do need to know in every area of life what our limits are. And my limits may be different than some other person's limits, but they need to know what is too much for them. And if they don't know that, they've got a little maturing to do. They need to... Uh, conquer that little area in, in their lives. Uh, now, again, uh, it's important 
to have a balance here. Ignoring God's commandments and adding to God's commandments are both alike an abomination to the Lord. And so we don't want to be like some churches where they say, you've got, to sign a, you've got to sign a covenant here that you will not drink any alcohol as long as you're an elder. Well, that would rule out Jesus, wouldn't it? And it would rule out Paul and Timothy because they all drank wine. And so we've, we've got to make sure we don't legalistically impose, okay, everybody's got to sign a covenant that you can only have this many glasses in a week. But you need to know what are your limits and uh, have a basis for that. I've got a limit that I set for myself that's way short of getting drunk, and I don't want to get anywhere close to being drunk or uh, in any way have my thinking impaired. And it may not be the limit that you set, but the Scripture says we need to know what is too much. That's the literal rendering there, too much alcohol. Now, the next statement in verse 7 is not violent, or as some translate it, not pugnacious, not a scrapper. In other words, if you're a person who verbally or physically bullies people into submission, you don't qualify. Now, some people justify their verbal violence by saying, well, I never lay a hand on any person, but there's more than one way to have violence. And uh, uh, verbal violence is just not appropriate. Now, again, don't get me wrong. Paul is not saying you can't defend your wife, you can't defend your children, you can't defend yourself against some thug, you know, that's come into your home by beating him up and beating him up good. Um, I would uh, give you my praise, and I think God would give you his praise, right, on that. But what we're talking about is a person who loves to scrap, a person who just, man, you know, he's always getting into fights with other people. That is just not appropriate. Verse 8 says he needs to be, oh, no, well, Another one. We, we skipped over one. Next requirement, not greedy for money. If an elder candidate is known to have been engaged in a, quite a number of get-rich-quick schemes, that's a problem. Uh, if he's been known to have engaged in shady deals, that's a problem. If he's known to have lost large sums of money through gambling, that's a problem. If he's a miser and is not generous with his money, that's a problem. Okay? Verse 8 says he needs to be hospitable which is literally loving strangers. Now, this is a characteristic that every believer ought to have is hospitality, according to Romans chapter 13. Every believer ought to have that, but it's especially a characteristic of elders. How do people learn the best? They learn the best by watching you. But how are they going to watch how to raise their children if they're never able to be in your home to be able to see how you raise your children or how you deal with grandchildren or others like that? And so having the people who are under your care into your home would be part of it, but having strangers into your home would be part of it as well because the literal rendering is love for strangers. And uh, so to model to your people how to reach out how to be hospitable to strangers, they need to see it happening in your home as, as well. And very, very important. God puts it right up there with those top qualities of what it means to be an elder. And I think every one of us should see hospitality is close to the heart of God. God welcomes us to his dinner table, and we need to welcome ours to our own. <clears throat> Make sure I didn't skip over any here. Verse 8 goes on to say he needs to not only do what is good, but he needs to be a lover of what is good and helpful and worthwhile. It needs to flow from his inner being. If he's frustrated, you know, with... Uh, God's Spirit is motivating you in these things. 
Uh, if instead you have an appetite for spiritual vomit and you're constantly having to fight against it, uh, then that's going to be a difficult thing in the eldership because God wants them to have a burden for good, a love for good, a drive for good. Uh, they need to be that mature where that's the most natural thing for them to be involved in. As he said about the household of Stephanus, that they were addicted to the ministry of the saints. And so what's going to make people want to follow an elder? It's not seeing an elder grinning and bearing it and enduring his Christianity. No, what's going to be infectious is where they look at this person and they say, this guy loves life. This guy enjoys life. He enjoys doing the right things that I'm struggling with. That's what's going to be infectious and make people want to follow after. Next two, sensible and just, relate to what we saw earlier of uh, rulers and judges. If they don't have any common sense... (laughs) It's ruled out because they're going to be a judge. You've got to have common sense. And that if they don't have a sense of justice in their family, in their business, and in the community, they're not yet ready for eldership. The words holy and self-controlled, self-explanatory, and yet how frequently do I see ruling elders who are not holy in their lives? And how frequently do I see not only elders but pastors who have no self-control in terms of their appetites? You know, they're the first ones there, you know, at the, at the d- dinner table, uh, you know, or at the picnic or at the, at the barbecue, heaping up their plate, and there's not a sense of self-control. How many times do we see... Lack of self-control in words, watching TV, discipline of children, sleeping in, the study of Scripture, you know, getting up, the devotions, other areas of life. We need to have holiness and self-control. By the way, discipline is one of the key qualifications of being a soldier of the cross of Christ. And so if you want to get into soldierhood, you've got to have it there as well. And then finally, he gives the doctrinal qualifications, verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. The first thing I want you to notice before I explain this, there's only two qualifications related to doctrine. Now, isn't that interesting? Some people think that they're ready to be an elder because they know so much about doctrine. But there's only two qualifications related to doctrine. They're important, but we need to keep in mind there's a balance here of all of these other qualifications. Now, this person may not have gone to seminary, and he almost certainly did, did not, but what he was taught by Titus, he needs to be able to communicate to others one on one. Don't expect preaching out of the elders. Uh, we're blessed that we have people who are willing to preach, but don't expect preaching out of the elders. That is not one of the qualifications for ruling elders. What they need to be able to do is to teach one-on-one the things that they have been taught and to be able to do so effectively. And so he needs to handle the word in a counseling situation, a teaching situation, an adversarial situation, you know, where people are arguing and he comes in and he's able to to graciously but firmly show the truth from the Scripture. That's very important. And if he doesn't have that, he needs more training. Now, we've seen in past lessons why having elders is so important. If there's to be godliness in the church, there is, it's not surprising. He puts high qualifications here. And so he does that because it's important for the elders themselves, and it's important for the church that the elders are being models to. And so what I would ask you to do is to pray. I would beseech you to pray for me and to pray for any future officers that come into this church that we would be protected from satanic attack 
on every level that we're talking about here. Pray for the candidates that the Lord would mature them and pray for elders they would continue to mature after that they are elders. But better that we wait two or three years than to bring in elders too soon. On the other hand, we've already said we need elders. There are things in the church that are lacking if you don't have elders. And so there's a balance there, and you're going to need to pray to the Lord for discernment and wisdom in your voting and in your applying. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, what a, a tough passage this is, and what a challenge to our lives. I pray that you would help every man in this congregation to aspire to live lives that would be characterized by what's in this passage here. Pray, Father, that you would help them to be godly pastors of their home. They can't step down from that. I pray that you would draw the hearts of the children to the fathers and of the fathers to the children. I pray that you would draw the hearts of the husbands to their wives, of the wives to their husbands. Help there to be sacrificial, godly leadership in the homes. And I pray that each one of us, as we look at these qualifications for elders, that we would seek to have our lives conform to that pattern. I pray, Father, so many times it seems that the people who least need to hear a message are the ones who are most pricked in their consciences over it. I pray that you would give them a sense of peace and confidence and security in you, realizing, Father, that even the apostles had to grow after that they were elders. And yet there are others, Father, who... Uh, hear messages, and it just seems to go right over them. I pray that these words, these scriptures, would sink down into the lives of each and every one here, even the youngest child. I pray, Father, that we would be a strong church and not a mediocre church. Help us, Father, to be an effective church in our outreach and not a weak one. We recognize in ourselves we're always going to be weak, and even the people who are most qualified in terms of these standards that you have laid out recognize that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Father, you can sort through all of the jumble of overconfidence or lack of confidence. And I just pray that you would give guidance to the candidates, you would give guidance to each one in the congregation. And, Father, we would have great joy in this congregation as we see officers established, the church strengthened, and each one of us drawn into closer relationship with you. We'll be sure to give you all the praise and honor and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.